Welcome to the Climate Report on Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM, Louisville. Also streaming live at forwardradio.org. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 342. Today's topic is, who do we trust to solve our problems? Who do we trust to solve our problems? This is related to the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022, which in large measure contains provisions that are supposed to address climate change. This bill passed by a slim margin in the Senate recently. It was 50 Democrats in favor of it and 50 Republicans not in favor of it. And Kamala Harris, vice president, cast the tie-breaking vote. So the Senate Democrats provided a four-page explanation, which is a summary of energy security and climate change investments in the Inflation Reduction Act of 2022. This bill promises to decarbonize the economy. I'm reading from the summary that we're given. It says, the investments in this bill will reduce emissions in every sector of the economy, substantially reducing emissions from electricity production, transportation, industrial manufacturing, buildings, and agriculture. The bill provides for the following. Tax credits for clean sources of electricity and energy storage and roughly $30 billion in targeted grant and loan programs for states and electric utilities to accelerate the transition to clean electricity. Tax credits and grants for clean fuels and clean commercial vehicles to reduce emissions from all parts of the transportation sector. Grants and tax credits to reduce emissions from industrial manufacturing processes, including almost $6 billion for a new Advanced Industrial Facilities Deployment Program to reduce emissions from the largest industrial emitters like chemical, steel, and cement plants. Over $9 billion for federal procurement of American-made clean technologies to create a stable market for clean products, including $3 billion for the U.S. Postal Service to purchase zero-emissions vehicles. $27 billion Clean Energy Technology Accelerator to support deployment of technologies to reduce emissions, especially in disadvantaged communities. And lastly, a methane emissions reduction program to reduce the leaks from the production and distribution of natural gas. The bill provides for, among other things, a sustainable aviation fuel credit, credit for production of clean hydrogen, residential clean energy credit, energy efficient commercial buildings deduction, extension increase and modifications of new energy efficiency home credit, a clean vehicle credit, alternative fuel refueling property credit, investment in clean energy manufacturing and energy security, extension of the advanced energy project credit, advanced manufacturing production credit, reinstatement of Superfund, 
clean energy production credit, clean electricity investment credit, etc., etc. So most of this is too complex and arcane for most people to understand. Not that they couldn't, but it's not relevant to their lives. So it ends up being a game that the big institutions can play, and it ends up being a game that politicians can play, and people end up getting played. Average people end up getting played. So that's one criticism of this, is the complexity and the obscurity. Another criticism of it is the complete neglect of biological systems. The complete neglect of biological systems. Biological systems, I mean living things, living ecosystems. Water cycles that nourish living things. Forests, farms, photosynthesis. To me, it is the living systems which are at least, at least as important as the reduction of emissions. The, the, the focus of the overriding climate change conversation is reduction of fossil fuel emissions, which re means we're going to modify our transportation system. We're going to modify heating and cooling, and we're going to turn that into something called clean energy. And if you call it clean enough, then people will think, well, it must be clean. We could have a conversation about how much of this is clean, but that's a whole other conversation. Suffice it to say that just because they say it's clean doesn't mean it is clean. Just because they say it's a solution doesn't mean it is a solution. And we'll have to save the rest for another day. But here's one thing that nobody's talking about. And that is the opportunity to dramatically reduce the total amount of energy we consume. Because if we're going to reduce our carbon footprint, if we're going to reduce fossil fuel consumption, then one way of doing that is by eliminating the activities that cause the consumption of fossil fuels to begin with. Things like endless war causes endless consumption of fossil fuels. Things like our agricultural system, such as it is, causes endless consumption of fossil fuels. But we're not talking about eliminating the agricultural system such as it is, because there are too many important people that are invested in it. We could change our transportation system so that we're not always building new highways. Highway, highway, building the highway. When are we going to build another highway? When are we going to add another lane? If you're always building highways for cars and trucks to drive on, and you're never building trains, you're never putting buses or bus stations in place, then you're spending public money on the most wasteful possible transportation system. So instead of changing defense, what we're doing is entertaining the illusion that we're going to do something good for the climate by changing the way we generate energy for it. Instead of generating a whole lot less energy because we have a much more efficient system, a system that is of, by, and for the people, we're just going to create this illusion that says if we call it clean, it must be clean. 
And instead of changing the transportation system so that it consumes a whole lot less energy because it is designed of, by, and for the people, we're going to create things that we call clean vehicles. And if we say it's clean, it must be clean. And instead of changing the agricultural system so that it's more organic, it's more regenerative, we have healthy soils, we produce healthy food, we produce food locally, all of which would consume a whole heck of a lot less fossil fuels than what we have now. So, but instead of doing that, we're not even going to talk about agriculture in the context of climate change except by saying how agriculture is a victim of warming temperatures, which are in turn caused by excess fossil fuels. So it's these stories that are created and it's these narratives that are created that mislead the people. And so what we have is a whole lot of misleading going on. I'm not expecting you to believe any of this just because I say it, and I'm not expecting you to take my word for it. But what we're mainly going to do is talk about who can we trust Mainly, who can we not trust based on their track record? So I have five items here to discuss in connection with who can we trust or whom can we trust. So here's how it's going to go. Number one, can we trust the people who brought us NAFTA and the World Trade Organization? Number two, can we trust the people who brought us the prison industrial complex? Number three, can we trust the people who brought us the war on drugs? Number four, can we trust the people who brought us and continue to bring us endless war? And number five, do we trust the people who absolutely refuse to bring us Medicare for All, a hugely popular program, an eminently practical program, would be good for the economy, would be good for people's health, yet we have both parties refusing to bring us Medicare for all, so are we going to continue to trust either party if both continue to refuse to bring us Medicare for all? So back to the top, let's talk about NAFTA and the WTO, NAFTA and the World Trade Organization. So NAFTA was enacted in the Clinton administration in 1994. NAFTA stands for the North American Free Trade Agreement. So it, this enacted by the Clinton-Gore administration, remember Al Gore, this big environmentalist, and it was enacted with the blessing and support of major environmentalists like the Sierra Club. And there was opposition to it, but the opposition was drowned out by the media and by the political parties. NAFTA gives corporations the right to set up easily in other countries. No more barriers. So NAFTA, North American Free Trade Agreement, we're talking about Canada, U.S., and Mexico. So it gives American corporations the right to set up in Mexico, Mexican corporations the right to set up in the U.S. with no barriers. It creates tax-free zones where you can trade across those lines. And it, and it gives corporations the right to sue a state, a locality, a city, a federal government. gives them to, the right to sue if a corporation's profits might be uh, threatened in any way. And hundreds and hundreds of lawsuits have been brought 
under NAFTA and under the World Trade Organization, and the corporation wins it almost every time. What it does is it takes away the sovereign right of the citizens of Louisville or the citizens of Kentucky or the citizens of the U.S. It takes away our sovereign right to enact legislation that to us is sensible for the purpose of, say, environment or wildlife or jobs or labor. Because we can be sued and those laws can be validated if a corporation thinks that this or that law, this or that regulation might threaten their profits. So are we going to trust either party or a two-party two system that brings us really bad public policies like NAFTA? Item number two, the prison industrial complex. Both parties, not least of all the Democrats, have brought us the prison industrial complex. So in the 80s, you had Reagan being tough on crime. And then in the 90s, you had Clinton saying, hey, let's be tough on crime, three strikes and you're out. And as a result, the United States has the world's largest prison population. China has four times as many people as we do, but we have a larger prison population than they do. We have no right to say that we're trying to spread freedom or democracy around the world as long as we have the world's largest prison population and according to Chris Hedges, 40% of people in prison never were never accused of committing a violent act against another. In other words, we're talking about nonviolent drug crimes. We're putting people behind bars for decades, many of them, because of nonviolent drug crimes. Do we trust either party or both parties together? to solve our climate problems, our environmental problems, our biodiversity problems? Do we trust either one or both of them together to solve our public problems if they are the type of people who would put in place a prison industrial complex that has a disparate impact on minorities and is devastating to minority families and neighborhoods? Prison Industrial Complex also features something called civil asset forfeiture, where if you're driving a car and the person in the car is accused of a drug crime, then your asset, that car, can be confiscated and the burden of proof is on you if you want to get your car back. It's senseless, it's pointless, it's grossly unju it's unjust to anybody, but it's especially unjust to minorities and neither party has a right to claim to be to have the best interest of minorities in mind if they give lip service to their love of minorities but they don't want to let minorities out of prison for non-violent drug crimes Obama or Biden or anybody else could change the the scheduling of marijuana so that marijuana is no longer a crime under federal law. They could do that and could pardon people accused of nonviolent drug crimes, but they don't. And we can speculate as to why. 
But the fact is that they don't. And not only are they not doing anything to reform these horrendous laws in which, which puts people in prison so people can be slaves for corporations. And all these big name corporations are paying people slave wages in prisons to do things like make uniforms. So not only are the laws not being reformed, but this is not being talked about. If you're a political party and you have a certain amount of control over the media, and there are these media organizations that are aligned with you. We know who they are. Fox News is aligned with Republicans. Washington Post, New York Times, NPR, MSNBC are aligned with Democrats in that they have like 90%, like 87 to 94% of their audience is Democrats. So the political parties are in bed with the people that own the media. And if you're not even talking about this, you could be talking about it, but you're not talking about it, then you are complicit. You're complicit. You're guilty of taking money from people who profit from these gross injustices and not saying anything about it and not doing anything about it. This is not okay. This is not the lesser of two evils. Item number three, drug wars. Are we going to trust either political party or both parties together or any governmental system or economic system that has brought us the war on drugs? So let's get clear. The war on drugs it does not exist to benefit people. It does not exist to benefit those who might be addicted to drugs. It does not exist to benefit the neighborhoods or the families of people who might be using drugs. The war on drugs is, among other things, a profit center for certain government organizations. And uh, the drug trade itself, you know, the drug trade is a profit center for certain government organizations. And this goes way back. Uh, government organizations and wealthy people. Today, it includes the banks that launder the money and it includes the chemical companies whose chemicals are needed to process the cocaine. And it is criminal activity, but they're not prosecuted for it because fundamentally the government does not pursue big name, big money criminals. Fundamentally, that's how it works. But I digress. Let's talk about the 1980s when Ronald Reagan is president and Oliver North became a household name because of the Iran Contra scandal. There was a Kentucky reporter by the name of Gary Webb who reported for the Kentucky Gazette, did a lot of good reporting on the criminality and the organized crime in the coal industry. He later went to San Jose, California and reported for the San Jose Mercury where he uncovered the fact that crack cocaine had been, you know, was a product that was being dealt by the CIA, by Oliver North, by the Contras, who were our criminal allies in Nicaragua. The Contras were against the government. The government was and is the Sandinistas, who, if you ask me, they're the good guys. For one thing, they're democratically elected. For another thing, they're doing good by the people. But the Sandinistas were the official enemies of the United States and continue to be the official enemies of the United States while the Contras 
were the terrorist outsiders that were attacking the people, attacking the government, attacking health centers, attacking schools and churches and farms. Well, Gary Webb wrote a book about this, especially the drug trade aspect of it. The book is called Dark Alliance. The subtitle is The CIA, The Contras, and the Crack Cocaine Explosion. And it's where Ronald Reagan, Oliver North, and a host of lesser-known criminals orchestrated the crack cocaine epidemic, causing a flood of cheap cocaine to flow into American cities. That was the work of the government. You know, with the government like that, who needs criminals, right? So if this sounds radical, if this sounds over the top, that's unfortunate for a couple of reasons. One reason it's unfortunate is that it, it only sounds radical because it sounds unusual, and it sounds unusual because we hear so little about it. The fact that we hear so little about it has nothing to do with the truth of the matter. It has everything to do with how our propaganda system works, how our media works. And how, you know, the media works by and for the powerful. So that's one reason that it's unfortunate that this sounds radical because it sounds unusual, etc. Another reason it's unfortunate that this sounds so radical is because everything I'm saying is easily confirmed. And there's a class of people in our country that consider themselves liberal, but they seem to not, typically do not want to do their own investigation. I mean, if you mention take any assassination of the 60s. And these are the types of people who would never believe that there was any government involvement in these assassinations. The, the name Fred Hampton is not even, in, you know, who, who, who ever heard the name Fred Hampton? A few people have, but it was proven in a court of law that Fred Hampton had been murdered by a conspiracy that included the Chicago police and the FBI. And this is the kind of thing, you know, Fred Hampton is such a little-known name that even Wikipedia will tell this like it is. And they're not going to try to obscure it, or, and they're not going to try to redirect you to the prevailing theory, which is the official theory that you're supposed to believe. It's what all good people believe. For example, it would take five minutes and an open mind for me to convince you that the official story about John F. Kennedy is false. It would take five minutes and an open mind. And I'm not going to do it here because I don't have the time, but it would take five minutes and an open mind. You know, Lee Harvey Oswald was never tried because he was murdered before he was tried. The prosecutor would have to prove beyond a reasonable doubt this theory that we've always heard about him being the lone gunman, not associated with anybody else, and the theory is just so full of holes, there's more holes than there is theory. But I digress, which is only to say that the, the, the fact that the war on drugs is a criminal enterprise orchestrated by the CIA and certain aspects of the military, and that the crack cocaine epidemic orchestrated by elements of our government. And it makes you ask the question, who am I going to trust to solve the problems associated with climate change and with species extinction? Who am I going to trust to do that? 
So I have two items left in the exhibits that ask and answer the question, who are we going to trust to solve climate change, species extinction, etc.? Number five is Medicare for All. So we have both parties are not giving us Medicare for All, even though it's popular. Like, roughly speaking, two-thirds of the population is in favor of Medicare for All. Almost 90% of Democrats are in favor of Medicare for All. A bare majority of Republicans, by some studies, are in favor of Medicare for All. And yet, both parties say no. Can't even be bothered to bring it to the floor for a vote. Are we going to trust either party or both parties together to solve environmental problems when they refuse to solve any other problems? I mean, for one thing, Medicare for All, other countries have it. So other countries prove that it can be done. It would be good for the economy because people would be able to leave their jobs more easily or start a business more easily. And of course, Medicare for All would provide needed health care to those who cannot afford it. Besides which, Medicare itself is the most popular health plan, more so than any of the private plans. So do we trust the people that brought us NAFTA really bad policy? Do we trust the people who brought us the prison industrial complex? Do we trust the people who uh, brought us our war on drugs? Do we trust the people who refuse to give us Medicare for all, even though it's a very good policy and a popular policy? And lastly, do we trust the people who brought us endless war and continue to bring us endless war? We could talk about these massive invasions that involved the deaths of millions of people, millions of people, millions of people, from Korea to Vietnam to Afghanistan to Iraq. In all cases, both parties made that happen. We could talk about the bipartisan policies that brought us, well, the Maidan coup in 2014 in Ukraine. We could talk about the policies that brought us the coup against Manuel Zelaya in 2010. Thank you, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton. All Zelaya wanted to do was raise the minimum wage. Well, that was unacceptable, so he was ousted. It was a military coup, and the State Department under Hillary Clinton couldn't call it a military coup because then they would have to cut off aid. Aid to the wrong people, by the way. Do we trust the people who brought us the ouster of democratically elected Mohammad Mosaddegh in Iran in 1953? Do we trust the people who brought us the ouster of the democratically elected Jacobo Arbenz in Guatemala in 1954? Do we trust the people who brought us the genocide in Indonesia? Little known, little known aspect of history, probably a half million people died because they were communists. Do we trust the people in both parties who brought us the ouster of Salvador Allende in 1973? Democratically elected leader, but Henry Kissinger says, oh, he's a Marxist, so he's got to go. So you can't democratically elect Marxists, apparently. Do we trust the people who, under President Reagan, brought us the invasion of Grenada in the 1980s? Or in the 1980s were funding both sides of the Iran-Iraq war? or who were endlessly harassing the democratically elected Sandinistas in Nicaragua then and now. Many people died. El Salvador, 
same way. We were supporting the wrong people in El Salvador or Panama. So the Panama invasion happened at the same time as Tiananmen Square. Why do we focus on one and not the other? That was under President George H.W. Bush. And people in both parties, when he died, they were saying, oh, what a sweet, nice man. I've got just a little bit of time left. Let me leave you with something to think about. It's not about saying that all government is bad, not by any means. But when government such as it is, is populated by criminals and driven by criminality, then let's stop worrying which party the criminals are in at this particular time. Thanks for your time. Have a great day.